This is the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. Hi there. Thank you for the warm welcome that you gave to the Maxiao Leadership Podcast since we launched earlier this month. If you have not done so yet, please hit the subscribe button because it helps more than you think. Also, make sure to download the accompanying PDF because it has the key takeaways of each episode. Like most leaders, you are probably currently in transition. Maybe you are new into your role or you're about to start a new job. Or maybe it's your manager or someone in your team who are new in their job or about to start a new role. If this is you, go to selfempowermentinstitute.com and register for the workshop on the leadership transition secrets. All successful leaders I know pay close attention to the transition into their new role because they don't want to compromise their career after a move that is supposed to propel it. Go to selfempowermentinstitute.com to register for the Leadership Transition Secrets Workshop today and secure success for your new role. I always like to make things clear for all levels of the organization. I, I always check that my uh, manager did the same. Because I said, if you speak a too complex language or two different level language, you will not bring the 45,000 people on board. And, and I think that's a mistake to be corrected fast. Otherwise, you lose good people, you lose productivity, you lose motivation, you lose everything. see that some corporations don't have, you have to trust people. And if you trust people, you realize that a lot of the KPIs are reporting visible. And I think a bit of trust is mandatory My guest today is an exceptional leader. He is one of the most brilliant leaders I know. Philippe Delpech is the CEO of the French electrical distribution group Sonepar. Sonepar is an independent family-owned company with global market leadership in B2B distribution of electrical products, solutions, and related services. Drawing on the skill and passion of its 45,000 associates, Sonepar had sale of 26.4 billion euro in 2021. Prior to joining Sonepar, Philippe served on the executive committee of the United Technology Corporation Group and was president of Otis, the world's largest elevator manufacturer. It's my honor to welcome Philippe Delpech on the Maxiao Leadership Podcast to discuss his impressive track record and his leadership secrets. Good morning, Philippe. Thank you for being our guest today. Good morning, Maxime. Nice to see you again after a few years. Yes, I know. It's a really honor to, to have you on, the, on this program. And um, I have to say, you know, this is a, a podcast about leadership. And when I think leadership, first name that comes to my mind is Philippe Delpech because of the impact that you had on my career and uh, how inspired I've been for working with you in the past. So really, thank you for everything. Thank you, Maxime. And um, before we dive into the content of today, you know, in the introduction, I gave an overview of your impressive uh, career. Would you mind telling a bit more about <clears throat> yourself to our audience? You know, I, uh, it's one of the questions I read before, before I joined. You can answer by many angles, you can give your resume, you can give your study. I would say uh, 
what defined me, I was a son of globalization. Uh, I was born early 60s, uh, really when the time um, transcontinental air transportation started in the 50s and became more popular in the 60s and 70s. 69, we went on the moon and then uh, 80, early 80s, China opened, early 90s, Russia opened, the world become global. And I started my career in 85, which means all my life, uh, everything was possible. I mean, countries open, uh, barriers of protectionism went down, uh, people became multinational. Uh, my mother is from Spanish origin. My wife's mother is from Finnish origin. My wife's father is from Danish origin, my father is French, uh, my kids speak multi-languages, my wife speaks eight. And I think this is what defines us. And uh, it's so important today when perhaps in the last few years, the world is re regionalizing again or reclosing again, which means that period which was normal for me, and that was my life, uh, is perhaps a period that we will wait for a while before we see it again. So what is then your definition of leadership? For me, uh, I'm an engineer, which means everything is square for me. Uh, leadership is uh, pretty simple. You have to have a large quantity of people following you, volunteering. Otherwise, it's dictatorship <laughs> uh, to go in one direction. Uh, and uh, that requires few steps, which are pretty simple to explain. but more complex to execute. Uh, one, you have to define a direction which is uh, logical, makes sense, which we call strategy, because if it doesn't make sense, you lose money. And if it's not logical, it's difficult to embark thousands or tens of thousands of people explaining something illogical. Then you have to uh, design the organization chart and the organization's structure, which will lead and achieve that vision. Choose the people in the boxes, and then communicate to thousands or tens of thousands of people. One of the quality I would say that is key is the backbone. You need to have a backbone which will resist to adverse wind. And you have a lot of adverse wind. You have the market, uh, you have the uh, employees, which sometimes are difficult to convince. You have the shareholders, which sometimes wants money immediately before you have done your strategy. You have also the leadership team sometimes, which uh, everybody wants to be smart or believe they are smart and everybody wants to have an idea, which means you have to align and fight those wins. And I think having a strong backbone and walk the talk, all these strong fundamental quality are necessary because people know they cannot bend you. Absolutely. You, you talked a lot about resisting adverse winds and being resilient in a sense in your descriptions. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing with us some of the most adverse wind you had to sail? Well, I had a lot uh, in my career. I mean, some were more adverse than others, depending also the level of hierarchy you had. But uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to talk about some uh, interesting. When I joined Carrier, we were using uh, gas, creating oil in the ozone layer. We had and we were making tons of money. Uh, we had to change the gas, which unfortunately after warmed the planet, but we didn't know that at the beginning. And you know, when you do those 
dramatic change. You have to fight shareholders and management who want short-term money and not long-term, uh, let's say, uh, sustainability. And uh, that was a, a strong fight I had. Um, I think in Otis, when uh, we started the digitalization of the corporation, of course, Otis was the most profitable company of UTC. And again, uh, the board and, uh, and the uh, UTC executive committee, which I was part of, was a bit pushy on the short term versus the long term. You have to fight that. You have to uh, resist that. So Nepal, I'm digitalizing uh, a business which was analog for 50 years, which means people love the past. You know, there is always a, a say saying that you, you see the past much better than it was later on. And it is the same in the enterprise. When you change something, the people start to love what they were doing, even if before they were criticizing it. And, uh, and this is what you have to fight. You have to fight those uh, incredible change uh, resistance at shoulder level, employee level, sometimes supplier level, sometimes customer level, keeping, keeping the, the direction and having a compass in your mind, which is very clear. No, absolutely. And, and, and you touched on, on that, you know, being able to, to have people following you willingly and they trust you from your own experience and with leaders you had the, you worked with, what would you say are the critical steps for people to become leaders that everybody trusts and respects? I think uh, one of the steps is the capability, okay, is of course you strategy, you need strategic skills because you have to define a strategy which is a winning strategy. Uh, otherwise after a while people are not stupid and realize that they go in the wrong direction. Then you need to choose the team, complementary team, to execute the strategy. That is one of the key uh, steps. And a complementary team is, uh, is a kind of logic. I mean, you need to have those skills that you can check and uh, evaluate and uh, get track records of employees, either in the company or outside, if you go outside. But then you need to have a human chemistry, which makes that 10 to 12 people, which would be the management committee, We'll work together. And you know that this is big ego in the room. I mean, everybody believes he's smart. And by the way, he is. Uh, everybody has great uh, expectation on his career. But for a while, for a kind of pause in their life, like three, four years in a phase, they have to work together without silo, uh, with a positive attitude, making the goal the strategic goal more important than their own uh, goals. And I think if you succeed to build that team, then the next phase, which is also very critical, is easier, is communicate and bring on board tens of thousands of people. You will never bring other person, but you have to bring the majority because then they will make it happen. But certainly the complementarity of a leadership team align, uh, no silo, good, uh, positive attitude, I will not say skill because a lot of people are skilled, is really that will make uh, you uh, change uh, successful. Very good. But, but you also have a background in engineering and science. How has that impacted your leadership experience? Yeah, I'm uh, starting at school, my, my major degree and uh, skill was physics. Uh, I mean, I was good enough in mathematics, but I love physics. That was my uh, strength. Uh, then I become aerospace engineer, which means for me, uh, 
data analysis, uh, facts, uh, at in. I mean, I'm not really, uh, I was not the guy going to the coffee machine even young and spending hours on, on bad mousing and thoughts. It's factual. I mean, bad news is factual, good news is factual. Uh, bad news has to travel fast, has to be explained. Uh, I never personalize. Uh, I'm not one of the executive who, who kill immediately the, the postman who bring the bad news. Uh, I realize that some people are part of the bad news, but at our level, bad news are so complex that it's 99.9% more than one person bad news. Sometimes it is, but it's very rare. And then you have to analyze. And I think uh, that makes also people believe that you are fair. You are fair in your analysis. You are fair in your judgment. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to say, but uh, I realized the other day that I have six, seven people I restructure, I fire, that still use me as a, let's say, a witness to the editor when they look for a job. They call me. And this, because they knew my decision was not personal, was factual, was economic trend, skills trend uh, driven, but not personally driven. And I think it's a, it's a good recognition when somebody you restructure kept a contact with you. Uh, absolutely. And for many, many more reasons. And leading to that, you know, throughout your experience, you know, other personal experience with you and how you develop leaders, but what would you say, um, should leaders of today do to prepare the next generation of leader? First, uh, realize it's important. I think people today uh, are under tremendous pressure, timing pressure, results pressure, communication pressure, depending on the, the field you are. I mean, I have the chance to be in a family non-listed company. I don't have to overspend time in communication because, I, and I'm not in B2C products. Some people have tremendous pressure there. Some people have results pressure. And at the end of the day, they don't spend enough time in two fundamental things, which is identification of leadership, education of leadership. Sonepar has for 30 years a junior MBA. We identify for 30 years. We didn't stop in 2008 during the financial crisis. We never stopped during any crisis. We every year identify 40 young potential below 30, 32, 33 and make them do an MBA inside the house. And then we do the same for people above 40 with a real MBA. And uh, which is, we have every year 80 people in the world where we fully finance transportation, food, lodging, education to develop them. One is an important investment. What I like in that is that the management has to find this 80 person, which means you oblige them to go and talk to people below 32 and say, okay, who are the guys uh, and the ladies and the girls and, and whatever the, let's say, gender diversity, who can do it? And what I realize now, if I look at the 50 plus, the vast majority of them have done these two MBAs. Not one, two. They have been identified as a junior, then they did it again as a midlife, and now as a senior, they, where they run large PNR units, which means education, and identification. Today, a lot of company under short-term pressure and a lot of leaders under short-term pressure don't do it enough in my view. No, no, absolutely. And uh, investing in the future is key in the people. And, and at, this, at the same time, leaders also have to transform the organization to deliver profitable growth. And um, 
that's what you've been doing at Sonepa. Would you mind working us through the transformation journey that you are on at Sonepa? Uh, for us, is a is a, a dramatic uh, transformation because of the industry. I mean, uh, basically, as everybody knows, B two C distribution has been totally transformed by the uh, Amazon-like pure-player model. B2B is more complex because uh, in B2B, you cannot be only connected through a web to a supplier because you have technical questions, you have education, you have uh, returns of products, which means a multi, we call it that omni-channel, but they're expecting the same quality of digital interface, which means you have an industry uh, which is born in 1900 with electricity. As soon as electricity was born, they started to have small distributor from New York to Paris, to London, to everywhere in the world. Until 2015, I would say, for 115 years, it was an analog base. I mean, you had product going to warehouse, warehouse going to branch, phone, mail, uh, a bit of web, uh, catalog, but that was analog. And suddenly we say to the people, the next generation of customer will be digital. Uh, they are born in 95, 96, 97. They are going to become an electrician, contractor, engineer, project manager, factory maintenance manager. And these people will expect a Uber-like uh, app for everything. And uh, then you are facing 45,000 people who have been successful since day one. That company was born in 1969 uh, last year, we did 26 billion euros, 30 billion dollar sales. It's an incredible success. 9% CAGR growth in the last 20 years. Uh, number one in the world, almost twice bigger than the number two, 10 billion dollar in the United States, which means it's difficult to say to somebody like that, you know, you have to change, otherwise we are in danger. Uh, that's the difficult part. The good part is we are in good shape. We have cash. You can finance the change. But make a successful person change in urgency is not so easy. It's an interesting challenge, which uh, was a bit like Otis. I mean, Otis was the digitalization of a very successful company. And it's, it's an interesting challenge because a lot of people say, well, we don't, why, why we don't stay the way we are because we love it. So what's the secret to drive change when things looks good? Uh, you need a good, I will call it vertical intelligence. You need to have a capability to speak at the floor level. I mean, uh, in my case today, the branch, the mechanics in notice, a language that they understand which explains the strategy. If you don't have that vertical intelligence where you explain at all level of the organization why the why and the how, it's difficult for people to make that translation by themselves. A vision for shareholder, it's very difficult for, for a branch employee in Sonepar to understand. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that, that's my uh, physics side. In physics, you go to the explanation. Uh, and uh, I always like to make things clear for all level of the organization. I, I always, check that my uh, manager do the same. Because I said, if you speak a too complex language or two different level language, you will not bring the 45,000 people on board. And I think this is what I try to do. And I think it's a fundamental quality lost. Uh, if you look at um, 
lot of communication of large corporations listed in the stock exchange, that communication has no sense for employees. Mm-hmm. Has a lot of sense for shareholders. And I'm not saying it's a wrong communication, but you have to translate that in something. And today you see a lot of uh, corporations where people are lost because the only communication is the shareholder communication level. And, and I think that's a mistake to be corrected fast. Otherwise, you lose good people, you lose productivity, you lose motivation, you lose everything. Communication, communication key at all level. Yeah. And then looking back specifically at the last two years with the pandemic that we went through, what adjustments have you had to make? And what did you learn from, from the past two years? To be honest, uh, thanks to what we do today, I mean, this incredible technology of Teams and Zoom and whatever, operating the company was not so complex, I have to say. Um, I think what was different is uh, that the local management became standalone because uh, you never had, we, we stopped this international meeting, we stopped these trips, which means, if you take Sony Park president in the United States, he managed for two, 24 months, $10 billion, totally alone. Which means uh, it was a, a kind of an interesting period to, to test who was really a leader locally or not, who did uh, maintain really the board in the right direction. And I think overall, uh, I was lucky because I did the change before, which means all the people in position were people I had either selected or were in place and I like them, which means we navigate the storm well. Now I imagine if you have a guy isolated who is not at the level, who is not motivated, who is not aligned, then you're in trouble. We didn't have much of that. But on the communication and meetings and exchanging information, I think these new technologies were incredible. I have to say the same pandemic in the 90s would have been very difficult to manage. No, absolutely. And I absolutely relate to what you're saying about the pandemic bringing to light the quality of local leadership. And uh, that's something that we experienced with, uh, with uh, our management team here and how we, we adapted very quickly and brought this communication to all level of the UK and, and Ireland at the time and how we structured the, the response to the pandemic. It's true that that was uh, essential. And I, I fully agree. And I think for Sonepa, because it's a distribution business, we are decentralized de facto because the customers are local, which means uh, centralized will be a bad idea. But for this corporation, and I, I know that you know some of them, which are highly centralized, I think for them was a learning that uh, too much centralization, and I had the chance to work everywhere. I had the chance to work in ABB, which was a matrix, where central and local had almost the same power. Then I went to UTC, which was fully centralized, and I went to Sonepa, which was fully localized. And you realize that the best organization is the pendulum in the middle, uh, fully centralized. At the end of the day, it's very difficult for the local people to exist. And at the end of the day, what happens is either the good local people become dormant, they, they don't bring any new ideas because they know that nobody listens to them, or they leave the company. Uh, but I think if you have a good balance between governance and standard and you let a lot of autonomy in the country uh, for the business, the marketing, the customer relationship, and you stop to ask 
too many stupid KPIs, which at the end of the day, when you have the KPI, suddenly you do nothing with that, except that you have 1,000 people entering the KPIs. Uh, you realize it's a much better uh, organization. People locally are more happy. They are more productive. They are more performing. But this is based on something that some corporations don't have. You have to trust people. And if you trust people, you realize that a lot of the KPIs and reporting disappear. Uh, and I think uh, a bit of trust is mandatory if you want to have an efficient organization. Otherwise, you have a slave and boss type of uh, system. And that never works well. No, absolutely. You know, finding the right balance. And someone yeah. said, you know, the minute you put a person in a function at the corporate level, the first thing they do is create a report because they need to yeah. exist and they only exist through that reporting. Yeah. No, no. I, and trust, it's, uh, at the end of the day, you realize that uh, the most important job a leader does is to select the managers. Uh, because look at how many countries when you have a good manager, it works well. When you have a bad, it doesn't work. Or how many business units. Huge, my job is to put the right guy in the right box. Uh, when I have done that, if I don't trust him, I'm stupid. Why I would put the right guy in the right, right box to not trust him? It's a, it will be a waste of my time, a waste of his time. You have to trust him. And of course, there is area where the rules are clear, compliance is fully defined, financial reporting is fully defined. It doesn't mean trusting you give everything away, but there is a lot of area where you have to tell him, I trust you. I mean, uh, and of course, trust means that if you disappoint me, there is consequence, but you realize that 99.9% .9 of the time, people don't disappoint. Absolutely, no, that, that, that's core and key. Now, we also continue to see a lot of challenges uh, with uh, risk of recession in most of major economies. How do you see the, the future of the economy in the, in the shorter term? And what, what would be your recommendation to leaders? You know, that? I started in uh, 85, uh, just after China opened. Then I saw the uh, Russia incredible uh, challenge with Gorbachev coming. Then I saw the wall of Germany falling. Then I saw the financial crisis in Japan. Then September 1901 with uh, the towers, then the uh, internet crisis, then 08 financial crisis. And every time people believe it's the end of the world and the uh, Iraq war. And, uh, I think things settled. I think what for me changed dramatically in the economy, uh, I mean, I'm excluding the Iraq, uh, Ukrainian war, which is uh, it's a war. I don't, I don't know what Putin will do, but expecting is not pushing on the nuclear button, the war will end at one point of time. What's more puzzling with me is this new world economy based on quantitative easing, which means uh, you get the cash flowing into the, into the market, whatever happened, and, uh, whatever happened. Uh, you get this very interesting relationship where Countries having huge deficit issue bonds, which are bought by central banks, which mean uh, normally I learned that is an open market. You need to have customers for, for products, but these bonds are bought by themselves. 
and the same Japan started in 92, then United States uh, in 08, and then Europe uh, now. But I said, okay, uh, is it sustainable? Perhaps it is. I'm not an economist of that level to say it is not, but uh, for uh, an engineer, it's not logical. <laughs> it's difficult for me to think that France having under uh, 20% uh, of the GDP deficit or in the study depending on the month has no interest on the debt and issue bonds that are immediately acquired by Frankfurt EU bar, the central bank. I said, why? I mean, what is the logic? I mean, same for other countries. Uh, if that is sustainable, I think we'll see a correction of the stock as we have seen and then we start again and suddenly some market will recover, some will uh, get I mean, you see it. I mean, transportation will suddenly go better. Uh, tourism will go better. Construction has been so good during three years, perhaps it will slow down. But I don't think you will see a drama. Now, if there is a correction in that system, it could be a longer, longer crisis. And I, I have no idea. I talked to the best banker of the planet, I mean, GP Morgan, uh, Goldman, and all the big bankers. They believe the quantitative easing will stay, but future will say. Absolutely. But one thing that we'll share about the future is digitalization. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, what, what's your take on that and the importance of AI and robotic in the future for companies like yours and others? First, digitalization is the next wave of incredible uh, productivity. I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. I'm going to make a comment. When uh, the 08 financial crisis happened, Carrie, we were invited by the US Congress we did a, uh, an investigation to see if the large companies serving the building had seen the, the, uh, this uh, crisis of construction in US coming. Did, you, did we see it? I mean, the air conditioning and elevator and everything. That day, when we were in Washington, uh, Greenspan was interviewed by the Congress in another room. Independently, he made a comment that I still keep in mind. He said, if you look at the plan the US had on losing jobs to low-cost country, I mean, Mexico, India, China, in the last decade, we basically knew down to the person level what we were losing. What we didn't see coming, United States lost 5 million jobs because of computer and cell phones. Not lost to anybody, they disappeared. Uh, it was productivity. That was computer and cell phone. Can you imagine digitalization of all internal and external processes, we talk about tens of millions of jobs going through productivity. And that is the negative side. The positive side, I think, is the only way to get a reindustrialization of the Western world. Uh, because that productivity will make these expensive countries of Western Europe, Northern America competitive and will allow uh, to. Uh, Relocalize some of the, some of the processes. Of course, AI. It's uh, unlimited. It's like uh, when I was uh, young, I saw the IBM computer playing chess against the Russian chess, and they lost. They lost. They lost. One day they won, and today they will win a chess master chess player in two minutes. This is the same. We have so many areas where the complexity is so immense. Pricing inventory management, that when we will have the right level of artificial intelligence in that, 
the machine will become so much smarter than we are today. We'll take so much cash from the processes, so much fat that, uh, and you will have a service level to customers so high that it will become impossible. I mean, we will look at the past saying, how could we work that way? I mean, it will be an incredible. It's a cultural change because I don't think mathematics is the issue. I think the formula is easy to do, but you have to make people believe in data more than their instinct. And when you're in distribution, it's difficult because people believe they know everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, that's so, so fascinating to have this conversation with you, Philippe. But uh, as we are getting closer to the end of our, our, um, our conversation today, what is one question that you wish I'd ask you? You know, you do a lot of interviews, people come to you, they ask you a lot of questions, but what is the one question that typically you wish people ask you and how would you answer them? I'm happy, I'm going to answer differently. I'm happy I did, you didn't ask a question. <laughs> what is going to motivate the next generation? Because I don't know exactly, uh, to be honest. Uh, each generation has, has a drive. Uh, I think we were the globalization generation, we were, I mean, I got a call to go to Japan two weeks after you live in Japan. Uh, you got a visa in Japan in a month. I mean, it was an open world. I mean, you got an apartment, uh, nobody asked you anything. Today, I mean, if you want to expatriate some people in some area, it takes, I mean, even US, get a visa in US today is, uh, is, is a drama, uh, which means we, we are changing, the world is changing. The new generation is really different. It looks like uh, they want to stay home. They don't want to, I'm making a general comment. I know everybody is individual, but in general, they have different aspirations, different target, uh, different balance in life between work and quality. Is it sustainable? Uh, because one day you have to pay the bill or the kids and you have to pay it. Uh, what I don't know. Uh, is it a deep change or is it like in 1968 where we had thousands of trucks and then smoking marijuana and then uh, 10 years after they were banned in New York? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it could be a, an important change with uh, sustainability, diversity. And that will suddenly ask us, and we are starting to do it, but it will ask us to reshape the company even deeper. No, absolutely. And that's so, that's so important. And um, maybe one last space question that maybe was an obvious one I did not ask is, with your experience having worked in publicly listed companies and family business today, what would you say is the difference? And I'm not going to ask you which one you enjoy most, but <laughs> what, what different no, do you uh, Honestly, I enjoy both. Uh, I think there is only one difference is the horizon. Uh, if you have a good family company of the size of Sony Park, 26 billion euro, the governance, uh, the board of directors, the financial reporting is very is equal to a listed company. I mean, you, you cannot manage a company like that based on morning coffee with the, uh, with the family. Uh, Sony Park is a company where the family is not involved in the operation, they are only shareholder, it's part of the governance, a very sophisticated governance. Now, there, there is a I would say one important difference is the horizon. You can say to family shareholder, we are going to do the right thing. It would take a bit longer to get a return. They will say yes. You know very well because you are in finance in UTC or in OTs now. 
that the quarter remains uh, really the timing of the stock exchange in New York uh, or the stock exchange in the world, but New York is, is suddenly the, the Ferrari of the stock exchange. And that is uh, limiting some of the decision purely compared to a family company. The second thing, which is less important, but which is not neutral, is that when you are working for a listed company, you are always taught to analyst, financial analyst. You never see the shareholder. I mean, they sell, they're representing the shareholder. When you work for a family, you have like two, three dinners per month with the real shareholder, the owner. And that gives a very interesting reaction. You want to please them because normally, I'm not saying that they're your friends, but you know them, they treat you well. And having a bad news to announce to somebody you like or you want to please is even more difficult than announcing sometimes a bad news to Wall Street. But I would say the main difference is the horizon. The rest, the governance of a good family company are very well aligned on, on large global corporation. I did enjoy both. Uh, I think I did it in the right uh, order because to be in worse, I mean, you know, I, I was reporting numbers to stock exchange for 35 years, which means uh, I did a lot of quarters. I mean, as a young at the beginning and then as, as head of the, the PNL at the end, uh, that required a lot of energy. And uh, every first day of the next quarter, you start again and you have to be strong. Uh, getting closer to my uh, retirement, I, I think uh, my uh, energy level, my thinking level is closer to uh, the family system. And I think I bring more maturity to that uh, system, which means, I did both. I'm happy to have done both. I enjoyed both and I did it in the right order. What are three books that you recommend to our audience and why? Yeah, I, I, I will not answer that, that way. I, I will answer another way because, uh, okay, I, so I read books on, on um, Italian Renaissance, which are books that nobody will read anyhow. Some might do. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, think, I think what's important, I would advise people to read books more and more, which go to the bottom of the story. I mean, I'm not talking about the romantic books and the, and the novels. I'm talking if you read the book. Because today, one thing which I don't like is the superficiality of the news. Everything which is complex is explained on TV on the cell phone in two lines. And after that, every has an opinion. And I think people have lost the uh, habit to say, okay, let's go to the full story, the detail. And I like these books where you go to the detail of one story. I and mean, if you like history, if you like geography, if you like sustainability, I read a book from uh, Bill Gates uh, recently. These books, you don't have to agree at the end, but at least you have all the data to make your own opinion. And I think in the future, people have to lose that habit of uh, staying superficial on news. Why there is so many fake news is because people believe everything immediately, fake or not fake. In the past, you will have read the news and you say, okay, that's impossible, or that's possible, or I don't believe it. Today, you don't have that judgment. Even me, I mean, I read like... Uh, 600 news per day, and a lot of them I read three, four lines. And uh, I know it's, okay, if it's the score of a football match, that's fine. But if it's something more important, that's not fine. And I think I would advise people to go to the 
roots at the bottom. I'm sorry to get, any roots, yeah, get to the bottom, like first principles in physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Oh, Philip, thank you so much. So as we close now, what's the final message that you have for leaders listening today? I think uh, having lived all the crises I just mentioned a few minutes ago, um, honestly, uh, except the ultimate crisis of a nuclear bomb, every crisis is a great opportunity. Uh, but by the way, I often add promotion after crisis. <laughs> Because then you look for new leadership. It's an opportunity for your career. It's an opportunity for your style. You can change style for your KPIs. You can look at new KPIs for you uh, developing leaders. You look at different leaders. You, you are more advanced, which means I'm not concerned about what we live today. I think we'll have difficult time to come. I think we could have a correction of the stock exchange, significant. Uh, we could have uh, more regionalization, but at the end of the day, for the good leaders, every of that is, a, is an opportunity. Which means uh, spend time looking at your team, uh, identifying leaders, educating them, and be bold in change. I mean, the incremental change in a crisis doesn't work. You have to be bold, uh, but you have to be uh, communicating on that, which means I think uh, it's an opportunity for good leaders. Thank you so much. We'll uh, finish on this very positive news, opportunity for all leaders. Thank you very much, Philippe, for this great conversation. Thank you, Maxim. See you soon. This was the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining us. To listen to future episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time, keep being the leader everybody trusts and respects.